don't faint, don't faint, don't faint. I'm not sure if you've ever tried to walk before after not eating or drinking for three days, but with every step, sometimes you have to focus on just not passing out. And as I walked down that long, dark hallway, with every step, I had one goal, to not pass out. Don't faint, don't faint, don't faint. And, it, and when I got to the place that I realized I might not pass out, another feeling came. Well, really three. Worry, fear, and anxiety. With every step closer to the doors at the end of that hallway, I became more and more scared. You see, I knew what was on the other side of those doors. And I came to the threshold. I took a deep breath. I threw a prayer up to God. And I opened the doors. And as soon as I crossed that threshold, guards came toward me and they said, what what are you doing here? I said, I want to see the king. Did he summon for you? Did he call for you? Did we miss something? I want to see the king. You know the law, right? Like, you know what would happen to you if you came without being summoned. I want to see the king. Okay. It's your life. And I pushed through those doors and I stepped into a majestic throne room. And then the nausea came back and the feeling of passing out too. Don't faint. Don't faint. Don't faint. As I crossed that room, it was like a sea of people parted. And as they stepped back, they were whispering and pointing. They didn't admire me anymore. They looked at me with pity because I looked terrible. I hadn't eaten or drank or slept in three days. And as I got close to that throne, people turned and they they tapped the shoulder of the king and he he turned around and he looked at me very differently than he looked at me the very first night I saw him when I came after 12 months of preparation. He didn't look at me with admiration or attractedness. He looked at me with pity and compassion. I didn't look good. I had those bags under my eyes and my my skin looked dark and my shoulders were sunk and, and I wasn't strong and proud and courageous. I was timid. And he came bounding down his steps and he extended his scepter to me. And he said, what is it, Queen Esther? What is it that you need? What is it that you want? Up to half my kingdom, you can have it. I took a deep breath and I said, come to a banquet tonight in my quarters. Okay, we'll be there. I'll be there. Absolutely. Anything. Oh, and by the way, bring, bring Haman too. And I turned around and as I started walking away, I, I replaced don't faint, don't faint with... That's one hard conversation down. One giant hard conversation to go. You know, the best stories in life are those with the biggest risks and the greatest conflicts. When you are are watching a show on Netflix and it gets to 10 or 11 and you realize you have to finish that season before you go to bed and you realize you're going to feel terrible the next day but you have to know how things end, or you're on vacation and you're in a hotel and you turn on cable TV and you get sucked into a movie and you ask yourself, can I endure five more commercial breaks 
or do I just Wikipedia it and figure out how it ends? Maybe that's just me. Maybe that's just my temptation. <laughs> but, but we love movies and, and, move, and stories and books and, and TV shows because of the conflict, because of the risk. It, it draws us in. And the story that I just shared is one of those stories. It's got incredible risk and incredible conflict and different than the stories that you watch on movies and on Netflix. That story, this story is real. And what I just shared with you comes from the pages of Esther chapter 5 with a healthy, healthy dash of savage imagination. And the story is an incredible moment. Queen Esther fasts for three days and three nights. Some of you ate three hours ago and you're already hungry for lunch. But she hasn't touched anything for three days and three nights. And she goes to the king very different than we met Queen Esther a few weeks ago after 12 months of beauty treatments to go in to please the king. No, she goes in today without any beauty treatments, without any strength, without anything going for her. She goes in in weakness. And what we're about to witness today is what God does when people trust him with their weakness. In this story today, there's one central idea I'm going to try to drive home for you today, and it's this. That God can do more through our weakness than we can do through our strength. God can do more through our weakness than we can do through our strength. See, our temptation is to only do things that we feel strong in, that we feel strong about. Our tendency in this culture is to hide and limit and leave behind our weaknesses because we view them as handicaps and liabilities. But in this story that we're going to look at today that comes to its climax, what we see is that God takes a person's weakness and he does something incredible through it. And we worship a God who, with our weaknesses, can do more than we could ever do alone through our own strengths. I'm reminded of the words of the Apostle Paul who said, But God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And that's really good news, because I'm surrounded by weak people today. And you're listening to one talk to you. If truth would be told, we like to project our strength to people that we don't know. We like to project our strength and the things that we have together. But if you were honest, and I was honest today, and it was just the two of us here, we could share about the weaknesses that we have. And today I'm going to share with you four lessons from this story. And the first one comes from this first section, and it's that God doesn't see your weakness the same way that you do. Did you know that? That God doesn't see your weakness the same way that you do. You might see your weakness as something that you don't have going for you. Something that's an, a liability. Something that, that, that works against you. That you need to avoid. That you need to set aside. That you need to manage. That you need to keep from hurting you. But according to the pages of the Bible, God doesn't see our weakness the same way that we do. In fact, he sees it as an opportunity to do something incredible. 
And that's what happens in the story of Queen Esther. If you missed the story, we'll catch you up real quickly. Esther was born as a captive, a Jewish captive living in Persia, along with her uncle Mordecai. No one knew they were Jews. They were living compromised lives. The king expels, kicks out his queen, and throws a contest to get a new queen. But this isn't a beauty contest or Miss America. It's something far more sinister and cruel. It ruins the life of every woman involved other than Esther. Esther becomes the queen after pleasing the king. And she and her uncle are brought into this moment where no one knows they're Jewish until Mordecai stands up and refuses to bow down to the king's number two, a guy named Haman. And at that point, Haman is not just angry at Mordecai. He's so incensed that he decides to kill all of Mordecai's relatives, which turns out to include Esther. And Mordecai says to Esther, Esther, you've got to speak up for us. You have the power. You have the influence. You have what it takes to save our people. You have to go to the king. Maybe God put you in this place for such a time as this. And so Esther says, okay, uncle, you fast along with all the Jews in the city. And I will fast along with all my servants for three days. And then I'll go to the king. And that's the story that I just shared. And we pick up that story in verse 5. And so after she invites him to the banquet, the king says, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Queen Esther has asked. And so the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. It's the second time he's basically said the same thing to to Esther. And Esther answered, my wish and my request is... If I found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleased the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast. I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. So she goes to him on one morning, says, hey, come to a banquet tonight. The king comes to the banquet. They have the whole dinner. They have their cocktail after dinner. They talk. What's your deal, Esther? What do you want? What I want you to do is come back tomorrow for another banquet. Now, what's Esther doing here? We don't really know. The Bible is not like the director's cut of your favorite movie where you can just pause it, click on that button, and see what was happening there. It doesn't work like that. We don't know why Esther decided to do this. Maybe she feels like she missed her moment. Maybe she, like you, gets really psyched up to have that conversation with that person and confront them, and the conversation comes, and you turn from a lion in the hall to a mouse in the meeting, and you can't say anything. Maybe she was like, okay, I missed my moment. Come back tomorrow and we'll try this again. We don't know. What we do know is what happens afterwards. Haman leaves the party and his chest has never been bigger. His ego has never been larger. He goes home to his family and he's like, family, I am awesome. Family, do you know how awesome I am? I am the number two man in the most powerful kingdom on earth. The king has given me this ring. I can sign anything I want to into law using this ring. I have so much wealth. I have so much power. Two nights in a row, I got invited to an exclusive dinner with the king and the queen. I'm awesome. But you know what? I can't enjoy it because of Mordecai. That guy, I'm like leaving the banquet and walking home to see you. And I see that guy. And what does he do? He doesn't move a muscle. Everyone else bows down to me except for him. And if he had modern plumbing back then, Haman would have described Mordecai as a leaking faucet. You know, you're lying there in bed, almost about to fall asleep, and you hear it. 
drip, drip, drip. I tell my wife that she's got uh, a Vulcan nose, not Vulcan hearing, a Vulcan nose, because several years ago we were sleeping, it's 3 a.m., and she elbows me, and she's like, can you smell that? And I said, excuse me, what, 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 what? Can you smell that? And she goes, the trash. I said, I was asleep. She goes, well, it woke me up. I said, the trash woke you up from sleep? She's like, yeah, can you take it out? It's 3 a.m., what are you talking about? And so, because I like my marriage, I went to the trash out at 3 a.m., and because it was annoying her that much. And in the same way that that smelled annoyed her, Haman is annoyed by Mordecai. And he's already decreed that Mordecai and all his people are going to die, but he can't wait that long. And so his wife says, well, I have an idea in Esther 5.14. His wife, Zeresh, and all his friends said to him, let a gallows 50 cubits high be made. And in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. 50 cubits high is 75 feet. And so she says, hey, if, if this is that big of a deal to you and you're so powerful, then just build a gallows and go to the king and, and tell him to hang Mordecai on it. And so Haman says, she says, Haman, then go joyfully with the king to the feast. And so this idea pleased Haman and he had the gallows made. It's like, hey, I, I can't stand this guy and I can't wait months for him to die. I'm going to kill him now. Well, while Haman is plotting Mordecai's demise, the king can't sleep. In Esther chapter six, it says the king can't sleep. He's worried. What's this deal with Esther? Why am I going to all these banquets with her? Why is she so worked up? Why does she look terrible? Am I going to have to pick another queen too? And so like you, the king is so unable to sleep that he pulls out a book to read, a boring book. And so in Esther 6, 1, it says, the king could not sleep and he gave the orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they read before the king. So basically he's reading the minutes of his empire. Really interesting stuff. And it was found written how Mordecai had told the king about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who had guarded the threshold and who sought to lay his hands on King Ahasuerus. And so Mordecai, earlier in Esther, Esther chapter 2, verses 21 to 23, read this last week, Mordecai saved the king's life. He figured out there was this plot to kill the king. He tells Esther. Esther tells the king. They figure out it's true, and they hang both the guys. This is recorded in the book of Chronicles. And the king says in verse 3, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's young men attended him, said, Nothing's been done for him. He's like, he saved my life. Hey, what do we do do for him? Nothing, king. We didn't do anything. And the second lesson we learn is that we are to trust God with our honor and recognition. Trust God with your honor and recognition. We live in a culture and a time where we're constantly looking over our shoulder to see if anybody noticed what we just did. Hey, did you see that? Did you notice that? And if you didn't, here's my selfie. I've always wanted to do this. You know, I'm going to capture myself because if I don't capture it and nobody sees it and recognizes it, it didn't matter. And yet Mordecai, we don't see anywhere in this book that he sought recognition for it. He saved the king's life and nothing happened. And he trusted God that God would take care of it. But while the king's having this conversation, here's a commotion out in the, the lobby. And he goes, hey, is it, who's, out, who's out there? Oh, it's Haman. And Haman's come to tell the king of his plan. So in verse five, Haman comes in and the king says to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman thinks to himself, Who would the king delight to honor more than me? I mean, I'm awesome, right? 
Like, who would the king delight to honor? Me. Right? And so Haman has this idea. He says, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse which the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set, and let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials, and let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor. And let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. If somebody is honored by the king, that's what they should do. This is very Prescottonian in terms of this passage because we're the city of parades. We just had the Frontier Days Parade a couple weeks ago. We're going to have the National Ice Cream Parade in a couple weeks and the National Hot Dog Parade coming up. I'm, I'm making those up. But we seem to have a parade here for everything. And he says, hey, throw a parade and throw the robes on him and throw the, him on the, the king's royal horse and put a crown on his head and, and have somebody really important lead him through the city shouting, thus shall it be done for the man who honors the king because Haman thinks he's writing the story for his own honor. Except what happens is the king goes, Haman, that is an awesome idea. Now go do that for Mordecai. Excuse me? Did I miss something? The king says, yeah, go do that for Mordecai. So it says, Haman took the robes and the horse and he dressed Mordecai and he led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. He has to say that over and 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 over again. And with each time, Haman's ego shrinks and it shrinks it shrinks. And he gets home, it says, after sneaking home in verse 12 with his head covered. And his wife goes, so how did it go, honey? How was your day? Did you get to hang Haman on the gallows that you built? And, and he tells her, not exactly. That isn't exactly how it went. And when he tells her how it goes, she asked him, she goes, hey, honey, is Mordecai Jewish? And he goes, yeah. And my translation of this next sentence is, oh, you're toast. <laughs> it says something different in the Bible, but this is the Scott version, the savage version. You're toast. Because if you just decided to wipe out the Jewish people, and the king's person he delights to honor is Mordecai, and Mordecai's Jewish, just do the math. And we see what happens in this passage is that Haman, his hunger, it devours him whole. It eats him alive. And as I was reflecting on this part of the story, I was reminded of the words of David Foster Wallace, one of the most well-known English professors and writers of the last 25 years. Foster Wallace died several years ago, but in a commencement speech he gave at Kenyon College in 2005 called This Is Water, he made some remarks that I think are relevant to us today. Now, before I go on, I have to tell you that Foster Wallace is not a follower of Jesus. He's not a pastor. He's not a theologian. 
But these are his words. He says, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, again, he's not a Christian, and he lists off in that dot, dot, dot section all the different options of gods you could worship. The compelling reason for choosing some sort of God is that pretty much anything else you worship eats you alive. He says, if you worship money and things, if they are where you tap for real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel like you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. Worship power and you'll end up feeling weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect being seen as smart and you'll end up feeling stupid. Always on the verge of being found out. The third lesson we learn is that what we worship consumes us. What we worship consumes us. And that's the lesson of Haman. He worshiped power. He could never have enough power. And in his pursuit of getting more power, he was consumed by it. And the same thing is true, even if you're not tempted by power. Maybe you're tempted by money. Maybe you're tempted by popularity or status. Maybe you're tempted by a certain house or a certain neighborhood or a certain car or a certain vacation spot. Maybe you're tempted by the approval of a certain person or a certain bonus or a certain level at work. Whatever your thing is, when you worship pretty much anything else other than God, like Haman, what you're going to find is that thing is going to consume you. It's going to ask for 100% of your life. And it's going to leave you empty and then move on to somebody else. And that's what happened to Haman. But before Haman and his wife could even talk anymore about this whole problem with Mordecai, they came and got Haman for banquet number two with the queen. And they have the whole dinner again. At the end of the dinner, this is what happens. Queen Esther answers the king's question, what do you want? And she says, if I found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be granted to me for my wish and my people for my request. She says, for we've been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we'd been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would not have, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with loss to the king. So what she's saying is that if my people, the Jews, were just sold into slavery, I would have remained quiet about being a Jew. But because we were sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated, I had to speak up. And king, grant my request that we would not be killed. And the king goes, who is he? And where is he? Who has dared to do this? And the queen turns and she says, a foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. And then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. Now, if I had to summarize Haman's response in this moment, and all I had to choose from were emojis, These are the two that I would pick. (laughs) First off, he's terrified because he's seen that look in the king before. And then his mind is blown because he's thinking, Queen Esther is Jewish too? Like, is everybody in this story Jewish? Like, do I have this correlation that if I hate you, you're Jewish? How does this work? Mordecai and then Esther, he's got no clue. 
And he's sitting there thinking, I just hatched a plot to kill the queen, and I got the king to sign it, and now he realizes it. Oh, I'm toast. I'm toast. And it says that the king was so angry that he had to leave. I mean, it's not just that he's angry. This was a Persian banquet. The king would have been buzzed at least by now. And so he's buzzed and he's angry and he knows he's not going to make a good decision. So he leaves and it says he goes out to his palace garden to, to catch his breath and to get his temper under control. And while he's out there, Haman is so worried that he throws himself at the feet of Esther to beg for mercy that maybe as a worshiper of God, she might save him. Because he knows he has no other option. He's seen that look on the king before when Bigthana and Teresh tried to kill him and they hung those guys. He's seen that look on the king's face before when he went to war against the Greeks. He's seen that face before and before he celebrated it. And now he knows that face is towards him. And so it says that when the king comes back, when the king arose from his wrath, from the wine drinking, went into the palace, Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw the harm that was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. This is just terror. This guy has the worst luck in the world. Not only did he try, he try to kill the guy that the king loves, and he tries to kill the people of the queen, he, the king comes back and it appears that he's trying to make a move on the queen because they're in her quarters. And he's just, I mean, you can just kind of see it from a cinematography standpoint. I mean, he's just falling down on the bed and the king comes in and he's like, oh, I wasn't doing anything. I don't know what's going on there. I, I, don't, I don't know anything. And so the king says, will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? And as the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. And then it says that, that one, of the queen, one of the king's servants turned to him and goes, well, you know, Haman did just have some gallows built today. <laughs> and the gallows that Haman builds to hang Mordecai on. Ahasuerus goes, go hang Haman on. What he intended to destroy someone else ends up being the own tool of his self-destruction. And the words of David Foster Wallace ring true. Pretty much anything else you worship eats you alive. Haman's consumed by this pursuit of power. It eats him alive. And this story, while riddled with divine irony after divine irony, is the story of how God provides for his people. We said on week one of introducing Esther that, that Esther is about the story about how God is always at work. Even when he seems hidden, there is no mention of the name of God in the book of Esther. Go home and read all nine chapters. You will find no mention of the name of God. But God's presence is undeniable in the book. And Esther and Mordecai, we meet them in the beginning. They are compromised people who no one knows are people of God. But by the end, they're the tools that God uses to protect his people. And so you go, okay, man, awesome story. Story's done. Nope. One big problem. I remember when I was younger, we'll just say younger, I watched this movie called Apollo 13. 
and there's this famous line in the movie, Houston, we have a problem. Well, in the story, it would be Persia, we have a problem. Because you go, hey, it's all awesome. Haman's dead. It's, it's gone. No, here's the problem. According to Persian law, if the king issues a law, an edict, and he puts his signet ring on it, it can never be revoked, even by the king. So Esther's safe, and Haman's dead. Mordecai's probably all right, but the rest of their people, they're still toast. And so Esther has to go to the king again. And in Esther 8, we read that Esther spoke to the king again. She fell at his feet and wept, and she pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite, and the plot he had devised against the Jews. And so when the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, remember that? We'll come back to that in a second. Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, if it pleases the king, and if I found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and if I'm pleasing in the king's eyes, if nothing else, if I'm good to look at, king, she says, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in the provinces of the king. And so the king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews. Oh, one other thing that's irony in the story. After uh, Haman dies, the king turns to Mordecai and he goes, Hey, everything that, that Haman had, all of his wealth, all of his power, here you go. So Mordecai is the new Haman. To the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, because that was the, the reach of the Persian Empire, 127 provinces, all of them, to each province in its own script and each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and in their language, they issue a decree. They can't get rid of the decree that says that any Persian can attack and kill a Jew, but they issue a new decree that says any Jew can defend themselves against the Persians. The fourth lesson from this story, God calls us to risk more than once. God calls us to risk more than once. If you go back home today, a little homework for you, you can read in Esther 3 where it names the day that Haman and his friends picked the day to kill the Jews. And there in Esther 8, it tells us the day that they were summoned to write the new edict. And the time period is over two months. Esther went to the king three days after that edict was issued. And four days after Haman was killed. But the king was done. He didn't do anything else. And so Esther had to go again to the king unsummoned. That's why he extends the scepter to her. And she had to risk her life again because going before the king unsummoned was punishable by death unless he gave his scepter to you. And so Esther has to not only go to the king once to plead for her people, she has to go again to the king and plead again for them to do something. I'm trying to imagine what Esther would have said to God when he said, hey, you got to go back to the king because something's got to give. And she said, you mean to do that again? You mean to risk again? You mean to put my life on the line again? Some of you, if I walked off the stage right now and walked up to you, you could tell an amazing story how once in your life you stepped out and you followed God boldly. You took a risk and a step of faith and you had no idea how it was going to work out. But you know what? God showed up and he moved in a miraculous and powerful way. A question for you. What if God wanted you to do that again?
What if that wasn't just a story that you told about a long time ago in your past? What if that was the pattern God wanted you to get used to stepping into? Uncomfortable, right? We love the idea of having stories to tell from a long time ago about how we risked for God. But we don't like the idea that God would call us to do that again and again and again. Well, the edict goes out, and in Esther 9, verse 12, the king says to Esther, In Susa the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the 10 sons of Haman who decided to try to finish their dad's work. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces, the king says to Queen Esther. And she says, the Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they killed 300 men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Haman was going to kill all the Jews and take all their wealth. But when the Jews defend themselves, they take none of it. It says in verse 16, now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives, and they got relief from their enemies, and they killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. So you go, great st- story, Scott. So what? That's one of two responses you can make today. Hey, that's a great story, man. C- crazy plot turns and irony and man, sucks to be Haman, you know. But other than that, like, okay, what's the story? You could say that or you could ask the question, how is this my story? And if you ask that question, I've got three things that you could do in response today. And the first one is this, that you could surrender your life to Jesus today based upon what you've heard. Esther basically lays her life down for her people and says to her uncle before she goes to the king, if I perish, I perish. My life is in God's hands. And some of you, what God has been doing in your life today and for recent days is stirring you. And showing you that you're like Haman. You've been trying to grab a hold of your life. You've been looking for your life in all the wrong places. Jesus said, whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. If you want to find life, you don't find it through power and sex and money and status and position and wealth and the admiration of others. All of those things eat you alive. When you surrender your life to Jesus, you get life. It's this crazy math that you give up your life and you gain a life you've always wanted in exchange. That's the first thing you could do. The second thing you could do is that you could adopt a new approach to your weakness. Like I said, most of us view our weakness as a liability. We don't recognize that God is in the business of doing more through our weakness than we do through our strength. And many of you would like to avoid your weakness. In fact, you've prayed to God and asked him to take it away. That's what the Apostle Paul did. He prayed and said, God, take my weakness away. But here's what God said to him in 2 Corinthians. He said, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamity. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. And what if you adopted a new approach to your weakness? What if you began to believe that God could do more through your weakness than you could do on your own through your strength? 
And then third, you could seek opportunities to give yourself for others. You could seek opportunities to give yourself away for others. This series that we've been in since the beginning of June really is all about how we live our lives for the sake of other people in this day and in this culture. Because it's not enough to just be faithful to Christ and remain true to our convictions. We have to do that for the sake of other people around us in a winsome and compelling way. And that's the story of what Jesus did for us. In an ancient hymn that we have recorded in the pages of the Bible, the Apostle Paul tells us, think of yourselves the way Christ Jesus thought of himself. Jesus had equal status with God, but he didn't think so much of his status that he had to cling to the advantages of that status, no matter what. Not at all. He says, when the time came, Jesus set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave and became human. And having become human, he stayed human. It was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life and then died a selfless, obedient death. And the worst kind of death at that, a crucifixion. In other words, Jesus gave his life for you. What is he calling you to surrender and give today? And unlike those other things that you give yourself to and that consume you, Jesus has given his life for you and he's inviting you to give his life, your life to him in return. And so this morning, the band is going to come out and they're going to play a song in a minute that, that contains the words of one of the most famous hymns of our faith, Amazing Grace. And we're going to invite you to come forward and make a response this morning. We're going to have some members of our staff and our team on the sides. And if you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, you could do that today. In the same way that Esther counted her life as nothing to her and trusted it to God, you could trust your life to Jesus today. You could take that weakness that you've been trying to hide and limit, and you could put it in the hands of God and say, God, do with this what you will. Or you could shift from trying to preserve and protect and keep your life. To follow the way of Esther and Jesus to recognize that you don't keep your life when you try to hold on to it. You gain your life when you lose it. You say, Scott, I'm too broken. I'm too far gone. God couldn't do anything with my life if I gave it to him. That's the story of Esther. And that's powerful. Keep working. That's the story of Esther. Her life was broken. She was compromised. She didn't know how God could use someone like her. And yet we've just heard the power of what God does when we give him our weakness. And that's your invitation today. What if you gave God what you have? What could he do? Whether it's surrendering your life to him, giving your weakness to him, or deciding to give your life away for others, we'd encourage you to come forward and pray, talk to someone. Why don't you stand and sing with us right now? Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.